In the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, penance, penitents sometimes confess, I've been judging too much. I've been judging too much. It's always good to make a distinction between the kind of judgments that we make just as a regular course of living out our lives, judgments that are in no way sins, and being judgmental, which can touch on sinfulness. We make judgments each and every day, dozens of them, every time we go down the aisle in a store choosing this brand rather than that brand. Decisions that we make about who will babysit our kids or who we will hire as a contractor. We are on solid ground when we judge according to what we see, what we know, what can be measured, objective factors. But when we stray into speculating about motives, it is then that we are out of our lane. It is then that we enter into judgments that only God can make. It is then that we are judgmental. For example, sad to say, it is not unusual to witness or to learn about actions that are clearly wrong, clearly immoral. We can name them as such, objectively. But what motivated the person to do wrong? Was it malice and evil and a desire to inflict pain upon another person? Or was it ignorance, just not knowing the right thing to do? Or was it impairment, something going wrong upstairs that caused the person to act in an improper manner? We don't know, often. Ignorance or impairment does not make an immoral action moral, a wrong thing to do right, but it does add context and opens up the path for understanding and compassion. Our Lord is asked in the gospel to make a judgment. And he knows exactly what is going on. He knows that this is not prompted by the action of the woman directly, but by the desire of the elders to entrap him, to catch him in a snare. And they think that they have come up with the scenario that will force our Lord to say something that will get him into trouble. 
because if our Lord says, no, it is not right to stone the woman, he is going against the law of Moses. He is going against a long-standing teaching given by Moses himself, and this will surely get him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. If he says, yes, it is right to go ahead and stone the woman, that gets him in trouble with the Romans because the land was under Roman occupation and the Romans had reserved to their own selves the authority to execute criminals. Whichever one he said would get him in trouble, either with the Jews or with the Romans. And so what did our Lord do? He bent down and began to write in the ground. Wouldn't you like to know what he wrote? Scholars have speculated for two millennia about what our Lord wrote in the ground. Some saying that he simply bent down and started to doodle as an act of indifference against the accusers who were trying to trap him. Others say that he wrote down the sins of which the accusers bore guilt. That's not a bad answer. Some modern commentators have said that our Lord wrote in the ground, where is the man, question mark. Obviously pointing to the fact that everybody who was on the scene knew perfectly well that it takes two to tango, as it were. But it hardly seems possible that the accusers, who had no compunction at all of objectifying the woman, using her as the object by which to trap our Lord, they had no compunction about that at all. It seems hardly likely that they would be deterred by a question that they could answer simply, he was too fast for us, but we know who he is. We'll bring him to you in due order. Now judge the case that we have brought before you. What did he write in the ground? Actually, St. John leaves us a clue. It is in St. John's Gospel that our Lord speaks of himself as the living water. The living water. A couple of chapters before this incident, our Lord is with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Our Lord asks her for a drink. She gives him some attitude. He responds by saying, if you only knew who was asking you for a drink, he would have given you living water. And just before this incident took place, our Lord was in the temple, the temple area, and he said, 
for all to hear, including the accusers, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. As scripture says, rivers of water will flow with, from within him. Now, where am I going with this? Notice that it's the elders who leave the scene first, the ones who know the scriptures the best, the ones who know the meaning of even the obscure scriptures. The elders and the others, I believe, saw our Lord writing in the sand their names, their names. And the elders were the first to remember the prophecy recorded in Jeremiah 17, when Jeremiah the prophet says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. They know what they have done in trying to entrap a good and holy man. They know that in so doing, they have turned against the Lord, and so they are the first to leave the scene. Our Lord does not condone the act of the woman. He does not condone adultery but he does make a judgment. And listen to what St. Augustine says about the judgment that our Lord makes. Look at the way our Lord's answer upheld justice without foregoing clemency. He was not caught in the snare his enemies had laid for him. It is they themselves who were caught in it. He did not say the woman should not be stoned, for then it would look as though he were opposing the law. But he had no intention of saying, let her be stoned, because he came not to destroy those he found, but to seek those who were lost. Mark his reply. It contains justice, clemency, and truth in full measure. What is this, Lord? Are you giving approval to immorality? Not at all. Take note of what follows. Go and sin no more. You see then that the Lord does indeed pass sentence, but it is sin he condemns, not people. One who would have approved of immorality would have said, Neither will I condemn you. Go and live as you please. You can be sure that I will acquit you. However much you sin, I will release you from all penalty and from the tortures of hell and the underworld. But he did not say that. 
he said, neither will I condemn you. You need have no fear of the past, but be aware of what you do in the future. Neither will I condemn you. I have blotted out what you have done. Now observe what I have commanded in order to obtain what I have promised. St. Augustine. This incident is recorded in the scriptures for you and me so that we might remember once again just how merciful our God is and just how far he will go for the forgiveness of our sins. No sin is so great that the Lord will not forgive the repentant sinner. No sin, however heinous, is outside the bounds of the Lord's forgiveness. And no matter what we've done in the past, no matter how bad it is, when we bring it to the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, we know what we will hear. We know that we will hear the words that the woman heard. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Go and sin no more. This, is a, this account is for us, and it also foreshadows what is in store for our Lord in that first holy week when the Lord himself will become ensnared not by his words or anything that he did but by being betrayed by a friend. Our Lord himself will be accused unfairly and judged unjustly and sentenced to death, a sentence from which he will not run, a sentence that he will embrace for your sins and mine. He will go all the way to the cross, embracing even death, death on a cross, so that we might have forgiveness and that the gates of heaven might be open to us. Our Lord does this for you and for me, poor sinners all. May we never despair because of our sinfulness. May we never be ashamed to bring our sins to the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. And once forgiven, may we keep following the Lord closely, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, so that at the end of days, our names will not be written in dirt, but rather our names might be written in the book of life.